Looking for your next hard writing podcast fix? The This Is Hard podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. Horror on Main, a new weekend convention for the horror community. There are plenty of horror cons to choose from, but most only offer the genre as writers and actors. We explore all the shadows within horror entertainment. From idea to product, there are many people behind the scenes, including writers and actors, but also artists, publishers, directors, and composers, and we're bringing them to you, as well as contests, movies, panels, podcasters, and much, much more. We've been going to conventions for over 20 years and are changing up the little things to make the big picture amazing. Join us Memorial Day weekend 2023 in Hunt Valley, Maryland. Come to the block party and meet your new neighbors. See horroronmain.com for details. So I have some pretty exciting news to share. Megan the Horror Babe is partnering up with Horror Max. And I want you guys to join me on my adventure as I watch really campy, cheesy slasher horror movies. I'll be watching tons of scary movies and reviewing them. And you guys can follow along. So if you use the code HORRORBABE, you'll get a free month on me. I promise I won't let you down. I'm David Demchuk, the author of the experimental queer horror novel Red X. Many readers think queer horror is just for queer people. I'm here to tell you it's not. We have the same dreams. We have the same fears. Red X tells the story of gay men who are being taken from their friends and family by an ageless supernatural being. But it's also my story, and the story of friends that I have lost over the decades. Join me in Red X as we explore my darkest fears together. Red X is published by Strangelight, an imprint of Penguin Random House, and is available at fine bookstores everywhere. Another episode of Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brian LaFaro. Say hi, Brian. Hello, everybody. Today, we are also joined by our returning guest host, uh, Erica Robinson. Hi, Erica. Hello. We're talking with an author of many books we'll cover tonight. Uh, I guess Werewolf, the Werewolf, that's how you pronounce it, right? Yep. That That's the upcoming uh, novella. By Alma Katsu. Say hello, Alma. Hello. 
thank you for having me. Absolutely. And let's just dive into the core of all this is, uh, of course, is more. I saw your tweet today and it's really it's it's why I'm bringing it up. You cover obviously way more than horror, but what got you into horror? You know, that's a great question. Um, Probably. I mean, I really came in probably through. more speculative fiction, you know, like fantastic um, fiction started reading Edgar Allan Poe probably way too young and, you know, similar kinds of stories. And it just went from there. Also, I read Interview with a Vampire when I was fairly young, and that was a pretty formative book for me for some reason. And um, and it just went from there. But also uh, my outlook on life is that it's pretty horrible. And, you know, if you're paying attention, it's pretty horrible. And, uh, yeah, it just seems to, yeah, this is going to be a real up and effervescent uh, conversation here. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's probably it. But I read very diversely. Like, you know, I read literary fiction for a long time. And when I went for my master's degree in writing back then, you, they never taught you genre. So, you know, it was all training in literary. And so I just... You know, I just look for a good read, basically. Hmm. Bleaker, the better. Yeah. And you, um, there's a lot to touch on. Brennan and Erica jumping in one sec, but you talked about um, one of your books being a vampire book and Dark Stars. Uh, I mean, I, I've I've told John F.D. Teff so many times now that thankfully he hasn't gotten annoyed of it. But like this is this. I think this is going to be as important as some of the uh, bigger anthologies um, from the 80s. And it's just beyond the table of contents being absolutely like the top notch of today's uh, writers in this field. Your story, The Familiar's Assistant, it it was so damn good. It was just like, yeah, it was super. My impression was it was like kind of what I figure Bram Stoker was doing, that this is. This is a monster, and it was a terrifying version of of a vampire. So, um, I'm wondering if you want to talk anything about that. Sure, mostly because I don't really write a lot of short stories, and that might have been the first short story I wrote in a long time. You know, I've, I've been Damn. lucky enough. <laughs> that I've been. Yeah, I don't know what I'm doing, basically, but um. You know, I was lucky enough to be asked to contribute to some anthologies, and I kept turning them down, saying I don't really write short story so i'm terrified that i would not be able to deliver to you on time i mean that's that that was my biggest fear so it was chugging along and getting closer to deadline and i had the idea for the story but if i say so myself i think the story's kind of magic and it's because the thing that makes the story work didn't come to me until like the 11th hour and then i had to thread it through i don't know how much you want me to give away about um- whatever you're comfortable with you're the writer so i'll you're the writer of that story so i'll be more comfortable with whatever you're comfortable with so the monster of the story the vampire is a monster and he's horrifying but you could argue that the monster of the story is the narrator is the main character and i you know, it came from, you know, I wrote the story where it's this young man who, you know, wants to uh, become a vampire's familiar. 
and he learns that there's a vampire and he he finds the familiar and he tracks her down and he becomes sort of her assistant. And then he manages to get her killed. <laughs> so, so the, you know, the question is, is he going to become uh, the new familiar? But, you know, I had to ask, like, what would make somebody do that? And it wasn't until that I really pushed that, that I realized, you know, what would drive somebody to that point. So it's, you know, he's the victim of abuse. He was abused as a child. His sister was abused as a child. His mother was sort of the enabler for the father who was the monster. And one day he found the courage to, you know, turn his father in and he lost his monster and he was punished for it. You know, his family turned their back on him. Everybody knew what he had done, you know, against his will. And so he's looking for a new monster. He's looking for a new father figure. And that's what he finds. But the story isn't written where you know all that up front. You don't learn it until the it's like, you know, petals being pulled off a flower <laughs> along the way. And you don't find all that out until the end. And then hopefully it like really gels for the reader. But it was, <laughs> it only came to me at the 11th hour. And then, you know, like almost all my books, the real meaning eludes me until it's deadline time. And then suddenly it's like, oh, I understand what I was writing about. I just want to say one more thing on Dark Stars is um, the the cast, it's great, but with Josh's introduction, like even if you don't know the guy, I mean, I'm biased now. Like I can't help whenever I read anything by him, fiction, nonfiction, I can't help, but because we I've heard and we've talked with him so much that I just hear his voice, his (laughs) excitement. So maybe that's why, but like in the forward, I'm just getting ramped up and he's talking about one day we'll have this big picture with all the table of contents authors. And he's talking about where you would go, where Ramsey would go. And I, I, I got to say, that's like the most fun you could have in a forward by uh, is by Josh Mallory. And um, I'm wondering, I'm talking a lot, but I'm sorry for cutting you off, but I'm just curious. Uh, what's your impression of, of being on that, um, that list, which is obviously well-deserved to us. It is a crazy list. It's, you know, and, and they're great stories. I read my way through it and just, you know, then been so honored to be part of that group, but it does sort of point to, uh, you know, what a lot of folks have been saying. And that is, you know, we seem to be having a real Renaissance, like a new golden age of horror storytelling. There's just so many really good storytellers out there. It's to the point where I think it's um, uh, giving people the uh, making other writers want to write horror. For yeah. instance, I taught at Clarion this year and I everyone was giving me horror stories. I was just agog at that, you know, and I asked the organizers, are they doing this just because I'm here this week? And, and they said, no, you know, it just seems to be generating and I'll read stories in other anthologies and they're kind of horror adjacent. I think we're just having a real horror moment right now. It's bringing out the best in writers. And when you get people like Mike Flanagan and, and just the name too, and Jordan Peele, who they're just on fire with what they're doing. Everything they touch seems to be spun into gold. It, it's kind of hard not to like be sucked in by that. Um, Brennan or Erica, please jump in. I'm talking too much for having three hosts here. <laughs> Want to get on the train? I, I get that. And uh, Alma, I would totally echo what Pat said. It's a, I think that uh, your story in in Dark Stars was a standout in a book of standouts. Um, oh, really you. wonderful story. 
Uh, I want to go back to something you mentioned before, and forgive me if I'm mixing up my words here, but you said something about when you write a story, um, finding kind of the theme or at least the deeper meanings, you know, as you approach the end. Um, and I, I think that a lot of writers may look at a story uh, from the beginning and think that I need to have this all worked out. I need to know what my, you know, in-depth meaning, what my deeper, um, you know, story is before I put pen to paper. And I was wondering what kind of advice you would give to newer writers who kind of think that way in regards to storytelling. Well, first of all, I wouldn't blame them. I mean, <laughs> you, you kind of want to know where you're going. It's like not getting in a car and just it's like, oh, I'm going to put my foot on the gas and go. Although a lot of writers do that too, which I just find amazing. So for my books, I tend to plot them out pretty heavily. Um, what happens to me on short stories is that, uh, you know, you have a deadline. You've got to turn that story in or your name is Mud, you know. And so I just I start working on it and then I just get more frantic. And just now at this point, I feel more confident that that the the magic, you know, key is going to make itself apparent before I have to turn the darn thing in. But, um, you know, earlier, I, you don't have that sort of confidence, but, um, you know, it's like a lot of things in life. They say, you know, if there's something you really want to just kind of have to throw yourself off the bridge and just trust that that safety net is going to magically appear underneath you. And there's a lot of things you can do as a writer to help sort of spur you towards maybe what you need to get to. So for instance, one thing is that I do tend to write very character driven books so that, you know, the premise behind that is, is that there is already a whole person there. If you learn enough about them and you understand human nature enough, then the, why is my character doing this? Hopefully will come become apparent to you. And it's not just something that you're plucking out of air you know, and slapping on like a Band-Aid, but it's really very intrinsic to the character and they determine their own fate. But then uh, since I write a lot of thrillers too, like, you know, there's one piece of advice I give out and that is like almost for any scene, especially if it feels a little tepid, just ask yourself, what's the worst thing that could happen? <laughs> the worst. And write that scene. And even if you don't use it, although you'd be surprised how many times I use that scene. But even if you don't, it might give you other ideas or at least, you know, take you in a direction that you hadn't anticipated before. And if nothing else, it feels really good. It's about the worst thing on the page. I love that. I love that. Um, I've got so much more, but I, Erica, I want to hear from you. Yeah, I know. I'm like very hesitant to throw in my questions. because I feel like they're like deep veers into a completely opposite direction, but kind of talking about just like genre in general. I know Pat kind of mentioned it at the start of the show, but you had a tweet recently where you were like, Hey, just a reminder, I write in many different genres. It's not just horror. My books aren't here just to scare you. Um, so obviously feel free to talk through that a little bit more. Cause I love how the stuff, at least that I've read from you so far is either like that vampire tale the werewolf or like some more like historical fiction historical fiction historical horror um but obviously i've got a question to tack on to that um is there a genre you haven't written in yet that you would like to in the future mm, good question well i'm probably inhibiting myself because my agent has told me that I cannot write in any more genres and that's not like because i want to right i just i um 
I love to write historical fiction, mm-hmm. although it looks like for my next horror novel, I'm going to get out of historical, at least for one book, and write a contemporary. But I do like historical. Almost all my books, except for the spy novel, had some element of history folded in there. Um, and then I did the spy novel because it was sort of natural because I'd been in intelligence for my whole life. So, you know, I loved the idea of writing an intelligence book that was more true to life than than a lot of the books we see. I've actually come up with proposals for a, a couple other different books, like one in fantasy, one in uh, and my first three books could be considered fantasy. Um, and then one that was more of a sp- straight historical fiction, not with horror in it. And, you know, my agent said, really, you got to think very carefully before you do this, because it's super hard to market an author that moves around through genre a lot. And it's something I think a lot of authors would like to do, but it's that marketing aspect. Once you build an audience in a particular you know, you get known for a certain thing. You can't expect them to follow you from book to book. And so if you jump around, like I've been doing historical horror one year, the spy novel the next year, back to historical horror, and then the spy novel, you know, there's a, only a handful of people that follow you across those books. So it, it's really more business thing than anything else, which may sound really lame to um, readers, but honest to God, it's the hardest thing is selling a book, not writing a book. <laughs> That's yeah, I, I I heard that a while ago with Stephen King, which is I, I know all of us know this, but I say this, you know, maybe someone listening doesn't um, that he came up with Richard Bachman. I mean, uh, yeah, Richard Bachman, um, that pseudonym to not oversaturate the market, which is what they just told him at that time. Um, I'm wondering if there's a lot of authors that we know that use maybe one or two pseudonyms just for that purpose. Does that sound like it still carries the, the general theme carries over, I know still, but does, does like, Hey, you should have a pseudonym. Is that something that maybe not you, but authors that you know of may oppose because they want their name, you know, on the cover or whatever. Yeah, that's a great question. When I started out, and it's been over 10 years now, it's so hard to believe. Somebody flashed up a, oh, it was Paul. Paul Trumbly flashed up a picture of us. <laughs> I saw <laughs> that, a young Paul. We did PGV bar, right? The first <laughs> yeah. time, which was 10 years ago. And we both looked so young, and Paul especially looked so young. Like a little boy. <laughs> like a little boy. A little tall boy. Little tall boy, yeah, very tall. Um, I think I feel like that was the use of synonyms might have been a little more popular a while ago, and that these days, if you already have an audience, that they may tend to put your true name, you know, not go for a pseudonym. Honestly, I probably should have done that in the beginning mm-hmm. uh, with the the first books. Used And I asked my agent and editor if I should, because, you know, I have a very unusual name and it's easier for American audiences, I think, you know, to remember more of an Anglo name. And so, you know, I could be Abigail Smith or something like that. And they were (laughs) like, no, you know, your name is very distinctive. Honestly, I think it probably has hurt me over the years more than it helped me. But for better or worse, we did it. And then when the spy novels came around, I said, should I use a pseudonym? And, you know, we could just say the author is, a, you know, is a, a award-winning writer and she worked, right? They have to give the name away. But they're like, 
That'd be too confusing because that was your true, you know, that's the name you use when you work. So yeah, for better or worse, we worse, we just ended up using both. You know, maybe I'm just like, because you know, I'm kind of pessimistic. Maybe it's I'm just so biased, you know, between having the weird foreign sounding name and slapping it on everything, you know, that comes down the pipe that that I've just horribly polluted my my brand and it'll never be straightened out again. I'm I'm glad you did it because he, he can have one bibliography. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it so much easier. I tell you, it makes it hard to make the website make sense. I've been going over this with my web designer. If there's a way to sort of separate the books a little bit, but oh, I'm just <laughs> giving up. Uh, Erica, you want to dive into the book that you uh, you have the freshest memory on? Although I finished two days ago, so it's fresh yeah. in my mind too. Yeah, the, the werewolf, I'm assuming. Oh. I've kind of read all three of these behind me, like, very quickly, back to back. So <laughs> I just wanted to clarify they're all pretty fresh. <laughs> I was gonna, Well, you know what? In that case, you pick. Dealer's choice. Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, I mean, I got to talk about The Deep. I think that one, I, it's so hard to pick favorites, but I think that one's my favorite so far. Really? I'm, so why? What parts of it? What? What parts, what aspects really appeal to you? I'm curious. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We were talking about it a little bit on the last episode I was on, actually, with Brennan. Um, it's a longer book. I can't remember how many pages it was, like 400 and something. But I was telling these guys, I read it in a day. <laughs> I could not put it down. Aww. And that hasn't happened to me in a very long time with the pandemic going on. Like, my brain is just, it can't focus. I get really distracted easily. Short stories have been my jam. But that one, <laughs> totally different. Um, That's crazy. Four, oh, 400 pages. Doesn't, didn't your brain hurt? I read really fast too, to be fair. Like my husband gets mad at me because he'll show me something sometimes, mad, quote unquote. Um, but he'll show me something and I'll like laugh. And he's like, there's no way you just read that. What did that say? And I tell him, he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the deep, I, it, it's so much about it. I absolutely loved. Um, the characters were one of the things that really stood out to me. I felt like, I was actually on the boat with them. Like, I feel like I kind of knew them, but not really. Like, maybe they were just passengers along with me. Um, and I also, like, historically have had a little bit of trouble keeping characters straight in my head if there's, like, a lot of them. But every single character in that book, like, really stuck out as an individual. Oh. So that was really cool. And it, it wasn't like you overly described them or spent like a ton of time with each one like they were all very quick some of them like fluttered in and out and every time I saw you know one specific character pop up I'd be like oh yeah where have they been um and there's the dual timeline too again (laughs) given a lot of my opinions but sometimes that doesn't work for me at all and I'm just like okay I don't care about one of the timelines I just want to stick to the other one and I kind of like rush through but it, I couldn't put it down because I was equally interested in both timelines and I oh. needed to know what was happening. So I just devoured Thank it. So Thank you so much. You know, that poor book didn't get much love because it came out the week the pandemic broke in the United States. And we went into that makes lockdown. sense. And we had such high hopes for it. When I say we, I mean me and the publishers because uh, The Hunger had done so well. Mm. And then, you know, here was a book that had the Titanic and so many more people love the Titanic. So we figured it was a no fail. And I go on tour and the night of the second show, they call up and they go, we're pulling all our authors back. You're going to do one more event. And then it's back. And then, of course, 
I mean, it's I'm sure it's starting to fade from all our memories, but there are <laughs> yeah. things I remember. And that first month, nobody had any interest in anything that was not the pandemic, right? We were all just scrambling. What's going to happen next? What's going on? Where's my toilet paper? And, um, <laughs> I mean, we had all this media lined up. It was gone overnight. You know, bookstores were closed. People were losing their jobs. I felt bad feeling bad about my book, but it was like everything we knew was gone and nobody knew when it was going to get back to semi-normal. Now, luckily, I think bookstores saved the day because within a month they were figuring out how to do online events and all that kind of stuff. And so think and, you know, publishers, I think, really were playing catch up for months with bookstores there. But um, it just it literally like just sank under the waves. <laughs> and I just had to say goodbye to it. But um, right. So not as many people have read it. And I really appreciate hearing what you say about things that are sort of difficult to accomplish in writing, like ha- juggling so many characters, mm. having dual timelines, you know, all that stuff. A lot of readers will say, you know, I don't like that. It's too confusing for me. I can't get into the story, whatever. And and to be honest, I haven't, I didn't hear that too much with this book, but you know, when people like the book, you generally don't hear <laughs> about it unless they really liked it. But if they don't like it, you hear about it all the time. <laughs> so I did hear a couple of them and it made me wonder, ooh, should the next historical horror be less complex? Should it have less of an ensemble cast? Because the deep really was incredibly complex that way. And um Oh my God, it was a nightmare in some ways <laughs> to write. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you very much for the deep love. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course. I've been like shouting about that one on social media here and there and every chance I get. Cause I think the Titanic is such a terrifying historical event to begin with. It is. So, it is. Yeah. I remember <laughs> there was a movie I watched, uh, Lifeboat, a really old movie. And I forget, I think it was the Lifeboat after the Titanic, but it could have worked with any, you know, large ship going down where, you know, there were people in the boat. And I think there was maybe just one guy that was hanging onto the lifeline, which goes around the outside of the lifeboats. And they were supposed to like take turns going in and out of the water to sort of prolong that guy's life. And just, you know, it's just that movie was just so tense. You know, who was going to die next? Who was going to say something stupid? Who deserved to be thrown overboard? You know, which noble man was going to freeze to death in the water because some, you know, greedy person wouldn't give up their seat for an hour, things like that. And so that kind of fear stayed with me when I was writing the Titanic book. That, That makes sense. Um, Brennan, uh, t- take us in any direction you want. I actually want to throw out uh, one more thing about the deep. I'm very curious. This is my, <clears throat> excuse me, this is my interpretation. And I wonder if I'm totally off base here. But when I read the deep, um, I almost got the sense of uh, a gothic novel set at sea. And I wonder if there was any thought on your part in that direction. That's interesting. Yes, I did try to make it as gothic as as possible and partly because it's also really a a, a romance a, a dark haunted bad romance but it's also a romance story and so to me the two go hand in hand like i love i don't think you can have a gothic story without some kind of romance in there whether it's sure 
yeah, you know, like Sarah Waters book, the guy was in love with the house, you know, um, this, it, so it just, you know, it just seemed that that was the kind of story it is. And, you know, the Titanic was this, was like a huge doomed grand hotel, right. Filled with people who are already dead and they didn't know it. Um, it, there's just so much of that. So yeah, that part of it, I really enjoyed, but juggling all those other parts was, yeah, very difficult. Yeah. It's all the books sort of have a different flavor to them, you know? And so that one was the more Gothic, you know, romantic, um, you know, dripping with ruined lace kind of thing. Yeah. Now you, I, I like how you said that they all have a different flavor because they absolutely do. They could almost, you know, they, the, the historical horrors, of course, get put into historical horror, but they could all kind of have a subgenre. But one thing that seems to tie them together um, is the inclusion of history with folklore. And I'm curious what kind of ties you make between history and folklore that really intrigues you. Boy, these are great questions. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm not going to have a very intelligent answer. Um, well, with the hunger, it was the most obvious because, um, it, you know, I do tend to, it's because I was an intelligence analyst. I do tend to just say the truth as opposed to like what might be the best thing to do from a marketing perspective. But um, <laughs> that book changed a little bit over the course of the writing. And part of it, just had to do with concerns um, about the atmosphere, reader's atmosphere when it was coming out, because um, from the time it was conceived and the proposal was purchased to when the final version came out, there got to be a lot of concerns about, um, you know, um, great. See, this is what happens when it gets too late. I can't think anymore. But basically it was like sensitivity over ethnicities and that sort of thing, right? And I, and I'm a minority, so I'm I'm sensitive to this as well. But it started out in the YA community and um it you know, and it kind of grew from there. And so then when we looked at the story and it had um indigenous people in it, there was just some concerns that we have to be very careful, right? That we're not being insensitive and the way the story was going. So we actually made a conscious decision to pull back from um, the indigenous folklore element. So the Wendigo actually was supposed to figure a little bit more prominently in the original version of the book. But as I started thinking about it, you know, we're talking about shapeshifters and every culture just about has a shapeshifter lore in it. So I thought it was interesting to kind of show that, you know, this is something that's common to a lot of people, whether you're looking at it from a Native American perspective or a European perspective where you have, you know, werewolves or what is that? Luke Garçon, um, wolf boys. I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> My French is is gone now. Um, you know, all the way to the to Japan and the Jirugumo, you know, that's a shapeshifter too. So, um, and also when we decided to pull back from the Native American aspect, um, you know, it, I leaned a little bit more on the, you know, is it science? Is this a real actual disease that's going on as opposed to something supernatural? You know, I tried to leave it a little bit up in the air so that people could sort of interpret things, interpret what the cause is to, you know, to what made sense to them. Although it does veer a lot towards the medical explanation towards the end. So, you know, that's probably, 
why it keeps coming up from book to book. Because also when we're young, that's when the world is magical to us. (laughs) And we get all these stories, whether it's fairy tales or religion. (laughs) I'm an atheist. Can you tell? Um, You know, these things that um, don't maybe necessarily make sense. And as we get older and we study things more and, and, just the world progresses and there's more science, we start to look to science for explanations and we start to give up the folklore part. But, um, you know, a lot of people want to hang on to that folklore and see if there's a relationship between the two. You know, where is science just another way of explaining what we've already been told, you know, when we were young? I'm hoping that if I get a little bit older, I'll start going back to the folklore part, but I'm a scientist, so... <laughs> maybe not maybe it's beaten out of me do you think being a writer allows you to actively and consciously oh i just said allow but whatever allow you to kind of get back your uh your inner child because we've when we had richard schismer on earlier this year i said something to the effect of since he's a writer and his boys are kind of adapted into that world that he's He's allowing not that other parents that aren't writers don't, but he's allowing his kids to, you know, explore creativity in a way that other parents that may not write, you know, don't explore. I don't know how to word this at all, but I was just thinking it's kind of cool if you got a dad who's not upset with you writing like serial killer books and (laughs) whatever. Right. Because I do think that's an area that everybody, you know, there's a lot of repressed people out there who won't let their minds go places that they don't think they should, Hmm. you know, and the fact that their mind does go there means there is some kind of natural component to it. The thing that I've kind of suffered for is the last 12 years or so of my other life, my working life, I've had to be wholly in science. And then that really, I noticed, really turned the dampers down on this sort of magical thinking. And honestly, I don't know what's going to get me back. Maybe just a lot of drinking. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting away from the science part. So um, uh, in, in the in the daylight world, uh, I'm still a consultant. I work in emerging technology. So I do technology forecasting and stuff like that. So I'm always looking at, you know, uh, technologies that are coming like three to to eight years over the horizon. And it just doesn't leave a lot of room for fun, you know, for thinking about werewolves and vampires and stuff. I mm. Do you like Black Mirror, that show on Netflix? You know, I haven't watched it lately. Oh. I did like the first year. I think I watched most of the second year. But it's, yeah, after a while, it's like, you know, so for instance, I worked in um, social media analytics almost from the very beginning. Oh, God. And so I'm like up to here, right? <laughs> Poor how lady. All <laughs> how all that works and algorithms and blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of times what I then was starting to see on shows like that was just like so elemental. It just mm. like there's so many other fun places they could have taken it that, yeah, that's, sorry. That, that, the, no, that's yeah. the, not, not at all. You're seeing how the sausage is made. I mean, like I work at a ship plant. So, I mean, no one wants to see that already. A wastewater. Oh, I should explain that. I work at a wastewater treatment plant. Literal shit. And you know, I, I dude, I don't care. I, almost gonna see the real me. I'm, I'm weird. Okay, I work at a shit plant, so I see how the shit is made. <laughs> it's Actually, a, it's a, 
it's a part of life. I mean, if it didn't work, we'd all be pretty unhappy. Yeah. And it's interesting because I could see the trend of, um, I, I'm an instrumentation tech. So I, uh, I work on, um, monitoring systems and you could see, I work in Atlantic city and maybe you shouldn't say it online, but whatever, I'm not hard to find. So, uh, basically from the last 10, 12, whatever years it's been, you could see how the normal flow of wastewater was like up here when Lake city was doing really well and thriving. And then it starts to drop. And then you can see it over the last year kind of start to climb back, you know, more so in the summertime, but it's interesting to see how you can see population and people able to spend more money through a trend of how much you flush your toilets. <laughs> I would have so that, that, never thought of it before. Yeah, that would be an interesting data project. <laughs> yeah. so, so that is actually so in intelligence, especially in all source intelligence, which I did for a long time. Um, you know, a lot of times we're trying to look into the unknown from a distance, right? Um, you can't just walk up to Putin and say, what the hell's on your mind, right? So you're <laughs> looking for indicators from other areas to try to get to the ground truth of what's really happening. So we do look at things like that. We would look mm -hmm. at, you know, how has water flow changed? We might not think to look at it in that kind of minutia, but it would be a good data science project to yeah. look at um, all the flow trends over 20, 50 years, if you could get them, probably don't go back that far on the, those systems. They probably weren't automated quite so much, but, and then try to track it against things like population or, uh, you know, economics in the area, that kind of thing. And you could extrapolate, you know, certain bottom lines from that, you know, certain ideas. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I can be so boring. You would not believe how boring I can be. So maybe we should go back to horror. No, this isn't boring. So unless Brendan or Erica say, shut up, I'm just going to say this, that, PLCs is what I work with, programmable logic computers, and um, they are basically what automate everything. They started, they were invented in the 60s um, for the automobile manufacturing uh, industry. And now pretty much everything that's automated uses those. It's way to monitor um, and documents and basically just make life easier. Um, replace people's jobs too but that's what technology does <laughs> it makes everything easier but it takes away things that you may have taken for granted before um hopefully in some ways though it enables new things like those systems are probably generating incredible amounts of audit logs right just you know and so much that it can't be gone through by a human and so you know we have programs that look through and try to look for outliers and things like that so hopefully we learn something from all that data that we didn't know before and that could make systems more efficient or you know more green or or whatever but anyway unless you want to change this into the programmable logic whatever uh, so <laughs> maybe the click 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 Think. So let's talk about the werewolf, Erica. How about you jump in or Brennan? 
Oh no. Every time Pat does that, I just look at Brennan. I'm like, are you going to go first? Or am I going to go first? Cause I'm terrified of interrupting somebody or talking at the same time. Cause that happens to me. You just do it. Would think just after, do it. <laughs> you would think after 160 episodes, he would remember to not ask two people at the same time a question, but we love one day, that. one day, maybe Erica, if you guys ahead. record earlier. <laughs> so Erica and Brennan, go ahead. <laughs> Yes, I will say something. Um, so like I was saying before we started recording, at least I hope it was before we started recording, um, that I finished it like right on time, right as the video for this chat started. So uh, it's very fresh in my mind. Um, I obviously don't want to give too much away either. So I, I'll start with like a very generic comment kind of. Um, and then I'll if you want to dive in and like say what you're comfortable saying about the story, because I know it's not out yet either. So um, I went in that one completely blind. I just got the attachment from Pat and he was like, hey, we're going to talk about this. So make sure you read it. Um, I was kind of assuming it was going to be some kind of werewolf story from the name, but like didn't really know. So going like for the first half of the story, I was just like, oh, where, where is this going? Is this just going to be a little bit more like the spy thriller? Like, are we going to get some like just straight up people violence? Um, but one thing about your stories and I actually wrote something along these lines about um, Red Widow. Um, I was like, yeah, werewolves are scary. Like demons are scary. Witches are scary, whatever. But people, people are terrifying. Yeah. So I'll just kind of leave it at that and let you dive in. Yeah, I was really happy to get the opportunity to get the story published because I really didn't think anyone would publish it. <laughs> but if you read oh. the afterward, I kind of explain where the story came from. And that is for a good chunk of my time as an intelligence analyst, I worked in a field. It's super hard to explain. It's complex contingency operations. But back in the 90s, that really meant like humanitarian operations, um, combat plus humanitarian, like you're trying to help the population. And in the 90s, that meant a lot of civil wars like Bosnia-Herzegovina, Sierra Leone, Somalia, you know, just one place after another. And you see the same patterns in all of them. You know, it's usually some would-be autocrat is trying to rise to power by dividing a nation, by turning one group of people against another with historic grievances and demonizing that other group. And they're always supported by militias. Always, always, always. There is a brown shirt terrorizing the population into submission and that sort of thing. And uh, I, I worked a lot in this field. I was actually the national intelligence officer for this area for over three years. And, um, you know, so I had a lot of colleagues in this field and we saw a lot of horrible stuff. We never, ever thought it would come to this country. We were so smug that Americans had the safeguards in place to keep us from devolving into that sort of area. And I was horrified, like a lot of um, intelligence professionals watching what happened on January 6th, right, from the comfort of my own home, because I've seen that in many other countries. And I just couldn't believe that happened here. And that was the impetus for writing The Werewolf because, um, you know, I couldn't believe that people who had been in the military, uh, you know, been, I'm sure some in the intelligence services could fall prey to that, right? It's a lot more common than we think. And 
but I know from having studied it, at least to some degree, the mindset that gets a person there, right? I mean, the biggest question that genocide scholars uh, t- discuss is the, the, the issue of complicity. How does just your average citizen end up being complicit in something so horrible that would seem to be so apparent that what you're doing is so wrong, right? It's a crime. It is a crime against humanity. And, um, and so that's what I wanted to show with the story. I would love to pick your brain on that actually January 6th. I don't think we're going to talk about this, but it makes sense considering the afterward. Um, if you're comfortable sharing it, how I don't understand how many people don't think or argue that that was not a domestic terror act of terrorism, because by definition alone, that is a political cause It is Americans um, that are causing it. They are attacking our national capital, like the building trying to hang people and kill them like our politicians um, I don't like Trump, but I wouldn't want our I don't I wouldn't want Americans to go and kill him. That'd be fucked up. He should be in prison, but I don't I wouldn't want to see them, you know, do what those crazy people did and storm it. Right. It's fucking crazy. Like if that if I if if that was my side, I wouldn't want to touch it with a 20-foot pole. You know, there's usually, um, you know, a core group of these true believers of the, you know, the the really hardcore folks Um, and why they embrace something that would seem to be, you know, antithetical to what you what governance means. Right. What you want to have in a governing body. Um, you know, they have a lot of different reasons for it. It could be grievances. They have a grievance against the country. They don't feel like their needs have been attended to by this, whatever. And eventually it kind of gets warped over time. But you hope that the vast majority of the population still has this, you know, the objectivity to be able to see things for what they are, et cetera, et cetera. What's really scary about the situation we're in now is that there's and this comes from the disinformation side of my work, right? We have been inundated with propaganda in this country for a long time. And people have ended up getting in these information silos where if you're in that silo and the only information you get are these lies that don't need any substantiation, apparently, people seem to be, that's the scary part, right? They seem to be turning off their critical thinking skills and their ability to sort of, uh, their willingness to question something. Uh, You know, again, how much of the population this really is, I still kind of cling to that 34 to 38% of Americans, right? That the majority of us still, um, you know, see things for what they are. Oh, sorry, it's late at night, so a part of my brain just slipped. There was another point I wanted to make. Sorry, it's gone. I shouldn't talk about serious things at this hour. No, I actually wanted to. I mean, you could pass on this, but I, I, you know, I love history. I've told you that before, and people that listen to the show aren't surprised by it. But um, I, I just that's one reason why I think it was off here. I said that. I was stammering over my words um, and I've done that with Gishi Grice, who's just wonderful. Just he's he's just not to say everyone else we don't talk to isn't great. But like for me, he's just on a different tier. And you and Peter Straub, I just got tongue tied. Um, so roll with this or don't. But um, as far as history goes, World War Two, I know that the Nazis put 
correct me if I'm wrong, they um, had radios put in the, you know, their civilian homes and poured propaganda in their homes. And and that's what's happening, not just with, you know, Trump or whatever, but that's what happens every day with our, you know, the thing we carry around with us, but we can't live with it without it. So I don't really have a question there. I thought I did. Um, Brennan, why don't you? (laughs) That's okay. You're absolutely right. I mean, autocratic countries, generally the, you know, party in power has control of over communications. So you have like state, the state news channel, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, and it mm. makes it easier. But we didn't have any in, in the United States. We had free press. But what we saw happening, um, so yeah, I was one of the earliest um senior analysts working on on looking at social media when social media was first erupting. Wow. And we were trying to figure out is there intelligence? Yeah, because I am super old and I have been through several waves of communications. And, and I was a communications analyst in the beginning. That, that's how it all started. So we were trying to figure out is there intelligence value in social media? I know that sounds so obvious now, but in like 2003, 2007, when we were first starting out, it, you know, it didn't, it wasn't apparent. And, um, you know, there were other things that the intelligence community was doing, proven sources, you know, before they sank a lot of money and uh, manpower on this, you know, we had to study it. Is there really going to be a valid intelligence um, target there? And again, the late hour just gets my brain. Where was I going with this? Um, Oh, so uh, I was working with some researchers who first saw that things were changing in the Soviet, well, Russia, sorry, (laughs) silly me. I still want to say Soviet Union. It's Um, not the Cold War anymore. David Alma. (laughs) It's not. And yet mm, it's looking so familiar. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so this was in I want to say 2013, maybe 14. He was coming to me saying, we're seeing this definite shift. And I mean, I guess it's not, there's been a lot of studies and a lot of reports done on this and the media used to carry some of it, but I think the perception is general is that the general population has gotten very apathetic to doesn't really care, gets bored by all this talk about, Russian methodologies for disinformation and propaganda and that sort of thing. But, you know, they started by uh, sort of attacking institutions, you know, the mainstream media, this blah, blah, blah. And then they started introducing these waves of independent experts. I'm an independent journalist. And, um, you know, some were even, they built up high Twitter followings and that sort of thing through bot farms, uh, when you analyze the actual lists of followers and followers, which we did with these very powerful tools, you could see that these were all bots and weren't authentic people. But the, in the early days of social media, that was enough to fool journalists. So they would get interviewed. These non-people would be interviewed by the New York Times, et cetera, et cetera, establishing right this right-wing viewpoint and that it was supposedly views being held by many Americans when they were actually being held by many bots and bot armies. Um, Anyway, but it was enough over time to really destroy this faith in the free press and, um, and, and knock that one pillar of democracy, you know, right over. So 
Yeah, this is less about, see, this is what I mean by horror. To me, this is true horror to watch you, this country that you work so hard for just be disassembled before your eyes in a relatively short period of time. And That's that true. most people don't care, right? They're and, sickened yeah. by it, they're upset, but but they just want to go back to streaming what's on Netflix uh, tonight. and Because yeah. it's easier. Um but I guess a great segue back is, you know, the Nazis, because that's a big part of the, you know, the your upcoming book. Yeah. So let me jump back in. Thank you for reminding me. So <laughs> one of the reasons, other reasons I wrote it is because I started to look at, I mean, I wasn't a Nazi expert, right? I was a genocide, I was a genocide expert, but um, the Nazis are fascinating <laughs> to people who study genocide. So what was so interesting about them is they were big believers in magical thinking. Hmm. Who else in the modern day has been a big believer in magical thinking, but Fake um, news. <laughs> <laughs> they, the whole Aryan thing was um, underpinned by, by some um, folklore, Germanic folklore that actually was sort of twisted by the Aryans to make it fit into what they needed to sell their little story. You know, so they looked to old traditional folk tales about the Aryans who were supposedly descended from the gods, like other races of humans, but were the closest. And that if you purified the blood, then they would be the closest to the gods. Really, is that what you're going to found your government on? (laughs) Right? I mean, doesn't, but somehow they managed because the Germans were so beat up after having lost the First World War right. and having economic hardships. They were open to being treated like children, right? And told these comforting stories. And so when I just saw um, coincidence after coincidence about the Nazis and the far right today, I, it was just like, damn it, I got to write this story. Yeah. And I, I want to touch on one thing and then Brennan, you jump in, sir. Uh, the way you talk about the Grimm brothers, I mean, we're of the crowd that travels in those circles that know about those brothers. Cause they're like probably the grandfathers of folklore, uh, at least written down. And the way that you wrote about it, it's like all your other stories I've read there. It's you're talking about familiar topics, but like the way you do it, it just, it's so well researched. It comes off, but it's, it's not boring. I love history, but like there are plenty of history books that it's just boring as hell, you know? (laughs) So I love that you cut out all the fat and it's just crisp and clean. And I just want to know more. So Brendan, go ahead. Your turn. (laughs) You know, I, I I really am going to reiterate a lot of what you just said. You know, I, 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 I don't know how I feel like one of the, a compliment you can give an author is, oh, they, their their work has a little bit for everybody. And it's such a cliched compliment that it almost doesn't mean anything anymore. But I really feel strongly about that in in this book and honestly, in a lot of your works in general. But like like Patrick mentioned, there's the grim fairy tales aspect and tied in with the whole idea of uh, the the Nazis kind of falling back on occult things um, in order to win their war. Um, 
tied in together. You know, as soon as I read it, I was very, very interested in the whole folklore fairy tale aspect. I was there for it. And I also knew that Patrick was reading it, you know, uh, 500 miles away in New Jersey, or that's, it's probably not that far. I don't know. geography. I was close. Um, (laughs) And I knew that he was diving into the fact that it's 1945. This is a dying regime. Um, This is a village that is isolated away from the dying regime. And we're watching how these people who are, who are isolated, who are, you know, far away from the government center are reacting to this second and sometimes third hand news, how they're trying to keep their um, uh, ideals, I guess, alive and why they're trying to do so. And the way it all blends together is just, I loved it. And I I think the, and it, it, it so works on its own, but then the afterward just gives you goosebumps oh. because the parallels are just unmissable. Mm. Well, thank you. I mean, I really hoped that the story was entertaining, but also maybe a few things in there, you know, one or two things that a reader wouldn't know. And of course that changes for every person, but to sort of make it all come together because you know, nine times out of 10, I've seen a lot of guys in militias. Okay. I'm not just talking about oath keepers and that kind of stuff. Inter Hamway and the Commodores and, you know, brown shirts and stuff. They're not smart guys. I mean, most of them are, you know, broke out of jail yesterday. They don't make wise choices, et cetera, et cetera. And they're not heroes for the most part. You know, usually they have their own desperate motives for why they're doing what they're doing. They feel shorted by life, and this is their one opportunity to grab power and get back at the neighbors who they think always look down at them all their lives. I mean, I could tell you so many horror stories from Bosnia, what people did to their own neighbors, right? And so I wanted to, you know, I can't believe anybody would listen, let alone idolize these people in America. I'm sorry. And when you read about, you know, when they single some of these guys out and then they reach, you learn their story, it's almost always the same. You know, they made a stupid mistake day trading. They lost all their money. Now they blame the government. They're going to pick up a rifle, you know. And so that's what I wanted to have in the story. These guys want so desperately to be heroes and yet they're so unheroic. And if you let them cow you, you know, you are lost. And and there's going to be bad consequences. You may not think so at the time, but there's going to be. There always are. This is one thing I was asked about before in other venues, not about books, but, you know, do you think it's going to get better? And having watched many genocides, um, the truth always comes out. It may take a long time, but the truth will come out. And these people, there will be a reckoning one day for these people. We just don't know when. Hmm. And, you know, everybody, everybody is familiar with the adage. If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. But it's so, it's a meaningless phrase unless you are presented with the occasional example of it. Um, you, you, you need to see, okay, yeah, yes, you're doomed to repeat it if you don't learn from it. But look at this happening in 1945. Look at this happening in 2021. And 
tell me you can't see the parallels. And if you can't, I'll beat you over the head with them happily. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Well, I guess that's probably why I feel compelled to write a story like this. Like, okay, so here's the history lesson. Watch it. The tweet today where I was kind of like, just, I try really hard not to give into this, but I went on NetGalley to try to find some nice things that people said about the book that I could try to push or whatever. And they were just more than I expected of the one-star reviews and people saying, you know, I, I didn't like the tone. This isn't horror. I don't like getting a lesson in my stories. <laughs> Probably should like read. That. And I'm like, well, first of all, it's a fairy tale. So that's a fairy tale tone. You know, I'm sorry if you wanted something more snappy, but, you know, anyway, I, but I shouldn't do that. The, the reviews are for readers and, you know, everyone's entitled to feel what they feel about a story. It's just sometimes I wish they would like take a deep breath and think, what was the writer's intent? <laughs> Yeah, man, you're asking for too much, Alma. Because every dumbass in the world has access to the same devices we do. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I'm not right, is the thing. And that, as a writer, I got to remember that people are looking for entertainment in their stories. Your books are amazing. <laughs> They're idiots. I'm just, I'm a reader, <laughs> so I'm right. <laughs> well, thank you. I know it's just hard being a writer when you're, um, I don't know what the word is. Insecure? Yeah. <laughs> We're all insecure. And here's the thing. It's like, I don't understand how we can put our hearts into something or any artist and just some dumbass comes along and they're like, oh, that sucks. Well, let's see what you could do. <laughs> you know, it's usually people that aren't going to really do anything that you did or half as good. Um, it's funny. I mean, I, I honestly, I feel like probably a lot of the folks who are impatient with the story might be on, on the young side. And I remember when I wrote my first book, The Taker, which is not the greatest book in the world, but it was overly ambitious. And I think a lot of first time novelists are overly ambitious with their first book. And it's tough. And there was like, especially with that one, there were a lot of things that had to be overcome that I just really didn't have the chops to do it. Still, you know, I managed to pull the book off. But I got this email or something one day, extremely critical about the use of first person and blah, blah, blah. Oh boy. So I was a little curious and I just looked this person up. She was like 18 years old. She was, you know, saying when I write, da, 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 da you know, and all this kind of stuff. And a few years later, she kind of came back into my little circle of things. And she was like, yeah, I was a jerk. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that is a nice way to end it. Um, Erica, we're, we're probably going to jump into what are you currently reading right now? Um, Alma, did I, I want to make sure I didn't cut you off. Did I? No. Okay. What is she reading? So we'll start with you. What are you currently reading? Alma. And Erica and Brennan, go. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, oh Alma, what are you, Alma, what are you currently reading? I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that's tough. You know, um, I get asked to blurb a lot. So there's usually a stack of at least eight books on my bedside at any given time that need Whoa. to be blurred. Yeah. So I just finished a book called Ascension by Nicholas Binge. And it's um, it's a little Lovecraftian, but it's... um. It's it's more fantasy, I think, than horror. And it's r- written with a really brisk thriller tone. And I'm still putting my thoughts about it together. 
I'm trying to think what else have I read that's not on the blurb stack recently. I just started lessons in chemistry on the recommendation of, a, which is sort of almost, almost rom-commy, um, which is not something I usually read at all, but it is the, it's got a really good voice so I can understand why it's, it's gotten so popular. Neither of these things are really horror. Let's no, that's, no, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'll go before you guys, cause that's usually not the case. Um, I started this one that's on a bookstore it's called, uh, I can't read backwards. Yeah, The Real real J.R. Tolkien. It is by um, Jesse Zander. I believe that's how you say their name. Uh, and just a quick little cool thing about them is uh, they are, I'm just reading from the back page, a queer non-binary writer. But the really neat thing is uh, they're a biological anthropologist apologists that's the way that they they talk about it in their forward that that's the way that they kind of address um the world and they they break down everything about J.R. tolkien um they talk about stuff about him and it, you know there's a bunch of biographies but to approach it from an anthropologist's point of view is really neat and and um i believe i haven't read you know most of it yet but I believe that it also covers his, well, it does. It covers his time in world war one and how that like middle earth consumed his entire life. He was always writing it. Uh, Whether it be the Silmarillion that never sold in his lifetime, uh, the Hobbit, which Silmarillion was supposed to be like, Hey, here's the next one or the Lord of the Rings. Um, He was, he was always writing it at one point in his life. Um, That, Book and Grady Hendrix, How to Sell a Haunted House for next week. And really excited to say that we have a friend of the show, Cena Palayo, is going to be a guest host for that. Um, so super excited about that. Uh, Erica. Well, I read that. It was super good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you, big fan of Grady too, because every book I've read, it's just not, nothing's bad. <laughs> So I got to tell you one thing, you know, Grady's, um, what's the word, rap. You know, I figured it would be charming and funny and, you know, spooky around the edges. I am a hard person to scare because when you've seen like 10,000 people killed overnight, it's hard to be scared. Okay. I was surprised. I was scared by that book. It had its moments. I was sitting in, you know, we live in a cabin on the top of a mountain. And I was sitting in a dark little room and I heard some scurry <laughs> in the corner and I was like, you know, squirrels. Paul Tremblay's <laughs> moon, that trailer just came out like last night, too. Yeah. Oh, man, this is all just it's it's a vortex of weird horror. Yes. We have a copy of Cabin in the Woods in my guest house, Cabin in the Woods. We It's the guest house. So I hope. Uh, guests read it, but I don't think anyone's done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, Erica, how about you? Oh, speaking of Cena, um, I am reading We... Oh gosh, no, I can't read it. We Came From an Island. Next. Can you hold it up really? Can, Fred, can yep. I just want to take a screenshot so I can send to her right now, if that's sure. okay. Well, let me I back know. up, because every time you take screenshots, <laughs> I'm like way up in the camera, and it looks <laughs> god-awful, so I'll hold still. And I got mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry for being a dork, but I just thought that she'd really appreciate that. Um, yeah, she's, we want, she, she's amazing. Uh, we were talking about you today, Alma, and she absolutely adores you. 
Oh, she's so sweet. She is wonderful. She's a damn good writer, too. She just announced uh, the sequel to, well, it's not a direct sequel, but the next book in the Children of Chicago series. I don't know if that's the actual series. Don't quote me on that. Uh, <laughs> Erica, how far are you in this one? Haven't started it yet. So it's going to okay. be coming with me as soon as we log off this and I'm going to dive right in. It's a really Very neat cool. cover. I know. Yeah. That's neat. Um, okay. Uh, Brennan, what about you, sir? Yeah, no, I was, I, I'm kind of between some things right now. So I just wanted to show off some things I'm about to start. And that was one of them. Um, I think there's actually some of the paperbacks left from Thunderstorm. If anybody's still looking to get that. Uh, I just got this one in the mail today. Super excited for this one. Little Eve by Katrina Ward. Katrina. Um, I, I thought it was Katrina. Uh, Katrina. Okay. All right. You're not Irish. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I loved sundial and need the street so much. It's like, I don't, I don't even know what the synopsis is and I won't read it before I dive into this book because I already, I trust her. I know it's going to be great. Yeah. Um, and I also just got this in no gods for drowning by Haley Piper. I have been looking forward to this book for a long time because it was with a publisher that she had to pull it from. She went back and retooled it a little bit, sold it to Polis, um, and it is finally in my hands. I cannot wait to get into that one. That's awesome. I would love to hear what you you think about that, man. I haven't read it yet. Well, after you read it, obviously. (laughs) So, Alma, where can people follow you? The best way to follow me is to sign up for my newsletter because social media is, you know, so unpredictable. Yeah. So if you go to my website, almakatsubooksalltogether.com, there'll be a pop-up. And if you would subscribe, I'd really appreciate it. That's awesome. For sure. Um, Erica, where can people follow you? Oh, I was actually a little more prepared this time. Um, my blog is ericarobinreads.com. So that's probably the best spot at the top. I have all my random social medias. So whatever anyone's preference is, they can try to snag me on whichever one. You know, very few people have said stalking when I said, where can people follow you? And I really wish I remember who said it, but I always expect that. And no one says like, don't follow me here or there. That's not funny. I want to move on. Um, Future guests. Pat, Pat <laughs> wishes to be entertained at the end of these episodes. No, I just, I expect someone to be silly about it, but uh, whatever. Final thoughts. <laughs> Alma, do you have any final thoughts? Any comments? No, but thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for putting up with my little foggy brain. And um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun, guys. It was a blast. Yeah, we we would love to have you back next year on like a panel with whoever. It doesn't even matter. You want whoever you if you were to say like, hey, let's have these people. Okay, we'll do it. (laughs) So that offer does not expire. Um, Okay, Erica, final thoughts. Yeah, just want to say it was very nice to meet you virtually. I hope we cross paths somewhere in person someday. Um, and I clearly, you know, I've only got three of your books. I need to go do some shopping. So yeah. some of the other stuff we talked about. <laughs> send them to you. We have copies sitting here. That's yeah, that'd awesome. be awesome. <laughs> and Erica, you were supposed to wait until Merrimack to spend your book money. I know. I know. My husband and I were just talking about that because our budgeting has been like very strict so we can try to do some other goals that we've got coming up. And <laughs> I was like, okay, I can't spend any more until after Merrimack because I'm going to literally map out like who's going, who I want to buy a book from and like what I already own. So I don't 
buy a duplicate copy that Damn, I that's smart. From them, but yeah, I got some work to do before that event. <laughs> but what if like you get a book that you already own, but like you, you, you meet an author that you can get a signed copy of, do you bring that book or I wasn't going to bring anything. I actually have an app and I have no idea what it's called and it would take me forever to find it because my phone has been acting up, but I actually have like tags where I track if I own a signed copy or if it's a signed book plate or if it's like personalized. Oh, wow. So if Damn, I go to somebody. Organized. Yeah. I'm impressed. Like, like, yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. Holy shit. I'm a little obsessive over it. <laughs> You're a wonderful like fan. If you know, for whoever is an author that's just like a fan that you want yeah my my husband called me a horror cheerleader one day and i just started cracking up because it's it's very true i just like to spread the word about good books and going back to our conversation about people being (laughs) negative i just i don't understand life is too short to like try to spew hatred on the internet like just talk about the stuff you love i don't care about the stuff you hate (laughs) yeah Right it's stuff like that, that, uh, that this is, this is why we celebrate you at the end of episodes and embarrass you, Erica. It's, it's sentiments like that. We love you. Um, <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, Alma, we are, we're so pleased you could join us tonight. I, uh, I have had the hunger and the deep and, uh, then the fervor sitting on my shelf and uh, this gave me the best excuse to sit down and read all of them. Good. And so so fantastic also you're the best kind of guest where when we gush and just tell you how much we love something you always find a way to turn it into a question and answer <laughs> it with something interesting um it, we, we could talk to you for another hour love to but i mean it sounds like you probably want to go to bed <laughs> i want to go to bed unless alma wants to stay very clear i want to be very clear about that well, I wish I could, but I think I am getting very silly. <laughs> um, <laughs> next episode is 164. That is with Grady Hendrix and our guest host, Sina Palayo, two immaculate writers. So very excited about that. Um, Alma, uh, we'd love to have you. Seriously, we would we'd love to have you again next year um, when you have another book or two out. Because <laughs> you are just rolling out with them. I try. I'm old. I have to make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun, guys. Absolutely. Erica, seriously, we do love you. Um, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Brennan, you have to say it back. I love you, buddy. Uh, listeners, you have many choices in podcasts. Thank you for picking us. <laughs>